Welcome to the Boom Boom Performance Podcast, your resource for science-based training and nutrition, data-driven coaching, and education-focused content. Before we get into this podcast, I just want to say thank you for taking the time to listen and learn with me so that you can apply what you are about to learn, take my strategies, use these tools, and finally have some serious methods to see sustainable success with your physique, your mind, and your life. This podcast was built on the foundation of applied education, and I'm excited for you to be here so you can have that experience with me. Now, without any further ado, let's get on to the show. Today, we have Krista Dixon Scott, who is Precision Nutrition's curriculum designer, meaning she is responsible for the lesson structure behind Precision Nutrition Coaching, the PN Level 1 and PN Level 2 certifications, as well as Pro Coach. Uh, Krista has her PhD in Women's Studies from York University. Uh, she is a trained counselor with certifications from George Brown College. Honestly, I'm going to stop there. The list goes on and on. She has a lot of experience inside of psychology, nutrition, education, and being a professor herself at a college. She's also a author, a published author for several books, um, Why Me Want Eat, which dives deep into overeating and why physiologically and psychologically we tend to overeat as individuals, as human beings, and we, we strive for more and more food, and we have a problem with these binge and restrict cycles, which we're going to dive deep into today. She's also the author of The Universe Within, Genetic Testing and What It Can Tell Us About Nutrition, Health and Athletic Performance, um, which I'm going to also link in the show notes. And I highly recommend both of those because they're fantastic reads and they, they provide so much further education inside of what we're going to talk about today. But today we're going to dive heavily into her story, how PN got started, what makes us overeat and how to battle that a lot inside of nutrition coaching, how to successfully educate people inside of nutrition coaching so they can sustain their results. We dive deep into intuitive eating and what that actually means. And then we finish off talking about genetics. Um, I really, really enjoyed this conversation, guys. And this is probably one of the, my favorite conversations I've had in a long time. Um, not only because I was excited as hell that Precision Nutrition reached out to us and wanted to get a couple of their educators on the podcast, and we have another one coming up that I'm excited about as well, but also because PN was the first certification courses I went through when I decided to embark down the nutrition route after being a personal trainer for years. So I did PN1, and then I was literally in the first go about, the first round of certificate graduates inside of PN Level 2 when they first launched that program, and she was one of the educators. So this is... this this podcast definitely hits home with me. And we dove into some topics that are so applicable inside of nutrition coaching and inside of being a client, getting nutrition coach. So I think you guys are going to find a lot of value inside this that is very applicable for lifestyle based nutrition. If you enjoy the podcast, please do me one huge favor. Take a screenshot of this show, head over to Instagram and post on your story and tag myself at Cody.BoomBoom. Tag Krista at Stumptuous, which is S-T-U-M-P-T-U-O-U-S. And then make sure you tag at Precision Nutrition so we can all share it on our story. And thank you for listening. All right, guys, without any further ado, let's get on to this amazing episode with Krista Scott Dixon from Precision Nutrition. All right. So Krista, as I was talking to you about just before this, um, I'm really excited about this podcast and another one coming up um, with Brian because... Uh, you guys are from PN. You guys have made a huge influence on me. When you guys reached out to me, I was fired up because you guys have actually been on my list of people to reach out to to get on the podcast. Um, and as I just mentioned to you, I was in the first round of level two. Uh, what would you even call that? Cert 
certificates or whatever people <laughs> like that went through the certificate. Graduates, um, I guess. Graduates. graduates that's a yeah. much more uh, a simpler answer. Uh, but I'm excited about this because it's a cool. Um, it's just really cool for me to have you on the podcast and be able to talk to somebody in a company that has made such a big influence on me personally, on my team, on the hundreds of people we've got to work with in nutrition coaching, but then also made such a massive dent on the nutrition coaching industry. I mean, you guys have done things that I don't think any other company has. So um, kudos to you. Uh, I'm excited for you to jump on the podcast. And before we go any further, I just want you to introduce yourself and tell the listeners a little bit about who you are. All right. Well, that was a great warm up. Uh, yeah. So uh, folks call me KSD or Big Coach KSD. <laughs> um, I got the title of Big Coach because I, I sort of became a coach of coaches. Uh, so that's that's how that came about. But um, yeah, so right now I'm uh, the director of curriculum at Precision Nutrition. So basically anything that is curriculum goes through me, whether that's our certification, our coaching programs, um, many of our blog articles, anything that kind of has an educational component somehow finds its way through me. Um, and that's my role right now. But in the past, I was, I mean, I have my own coaching clients. I was a PN coach. I was a coach of the, the level two cohort that you went through. Um, so like there's this blend of coaching, teaching, I do some speaking, uh, but most of it right now is in curriculum and, and curriculum development. So how did it all start? Like before PM, before any of that, how did you get into the field of nutrition and start studying this and everything? Well, it's funny because my mom was actually um, a nutritionist. Like she was one of the first um, women to get like a food science degree in the in the 60s from University of Toronto. And that was, I mean, at the time that was more of like a home economics angle, although she she worked as a hospital dietitian. So, um, so I actually kind of come by it honestly. And so I was that like weird kid in the 70s that had to eat whole wheat bread and wasn't allowed <laughs> to drink pop or soda. And, so, <laughs> you know, like at the time I was like, mom, this sucks. But of course now I'm like super grateful that that was, that was the upbringing that I had. And, um, and so it was always kind of like a side interest for me, but I think it became especially acute when I was going through grad school. Um, and my, like, you know, I started undergrad in a completely different field. I was in fine arts, like it was totally unrelated. But as I progressed through grad school, um, you know, I got more and more unhealthy as many grad students do. I gained weight. I was, you know, eating chicken wings, living on chicken wings and beer and Subway and, and 7-Eleven big gulps because that was all I could afford for entertainment. <laughs> 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 that, that was how I rolled in those days. And so, um, you know, I found myself like in the early 90s, like 50 pounds overweight and pretty unhealthy and, and just not feeling good. And um, so I was like, okay, I got I to gotta fix the situation. And this was in the early days of the internet. So there was no, there was no CrossFit, like women did not lift weights. Um, there was very little information available. You could get fitness magazines, but it was either like super hardcore, like flex, I think flex was around and then like shape or something like that. Right. Um, so I basically became self-educated to solve my own problem. Now, luckily I was an academic, I was at a university, I had a university library. Um, the university I was at York university in Toronto, had a fairly strong, um, you know, kinesiology faculty, Tudor Bompa was there. So like, I was able to access the information to fix my own problems. And I think that's how a lot of people get into health and fitness, like something goes wrong with them. And they're like, Oh, I got to learn about this. Mm -hmm. And so over the years, every time something happened to me, I was like, I'm going to go and learn everything there is about this and fix this. So, you know, when I had a back injury, I fixed it. When I had a knee injury, I fixed it. Um, and so that was kind of how it progressed. And then 
eventually, uh, you know, working as an academic, as a professor, it dawned on me one day, uh, I was working as a personal trainer on the side, I was like, I can make more money personal training than being a university professor. If I look at this on an hourly wage basis, academia is no longer bringing me joy. I need to get out. I could make more money on an hourly basis being a personal trainer. And so I ran the numbers and I quit academia. Um, and so that's, <laughs> that's sort of how I ended up starting to work with precision nutrition as well back about uh, 11 or 12 years ago. That's, that's how it began. I love it. Um, and I 100% agree. I think almost, at least most really good coaches, um, and I think that's where the empathy comes into the coaching relationship is they have some physical story that they went through something and they had to go through the struggle in the educational process to change their lifestyle, change the results, so on and so forth. So um, it's always nice and refreshing when somebody has that personal buy-in. Um, so you met PN 12 years ago and you just jumped on board and you started coaching with them. How did that evolution kind of take process as far as you getting in there? And, and where were they when you first came into the, the, the program? Because obviously PN has come a long way since, I don't even know how long ago they would have been created um but if you can fill us in on how that all started with you yeah well i actually met so precision nutrition was founded by two guys everyone knows john berardi but phil caravaggio uh was sort of the business end of things um so he was like not a lot of people know about him because he was kind of in the background mm -hmm. and but but he was the one that i first met back i think i met him in the year 2000 99 or 2000 i think he was still an undergraduate we met because we were in a weightlifting forum online. And like at that time, it was really weird to meet people off the internet. So, um, you know, when I walked in and saw him, like he was wearing a baseball hat and a sweatshirt, and I was like, ah, oh, is this going to be some like dumb jock? But of course, he turned out to be brilliant <laughs> and amazing. And so I'd had this um, previously existing relationship with Phil. And then through Phil, I met John in the early 2000s. Um, you know, and we kind of orbited each other a little bit, but it wasn't until I quit my job in 2000 eight that I started working with them. But Phil and I had been working on a charity called the Healthy Food Bank. And the idea was that food banks um, have money and often storage facilities for healthy food. It's just whenever we donate to the food bank, we think, oh, non-perishable food. And we put a can of beans <laughs> like in the donation bin. But a lot of uh, food banks don't necessarily need non-perishables. They need money to get healthy food, which they mm -hmm. can then dispense. So Phil and I were working on that. and. Um, but I think, and I'm trying to recall, I think Precision Nutrition proper started in 2005 or 2006. But before that, Phil had gone to John Berardi and said, listen, there's this thing called the internet, and I think we can make money off it. Because <laughs> John was doing his PhD at the time. And so Phil was like, I bet you if you were writing articles and getting them out there, we could make a viable business out of this. And John at the time sort of poo-pooed the idea, but of course, you know, luckily Phil swayed him to his side. And so that's like the early iteration of Precision Nutrition was John's writing, was John's coaching, was John's you know, expert advising, undergirded by Phil's uh, technical savvy and, and business savvy and understanding how to build a business out of this. So yeah, that's, that's kind of how it began. And, and in the beginning, it was, again, solving someone else's problem, right? John was trying to figure out, how do I make a viable business out of coaching? Because in-person coaching doesn't scale. If I, you know, I can only meet with so many clients in person in a day or in a week. So John was like, well, how do I, how do I scale this? And Phil was like, well, we go online, we coach online. And at that time, no one was coaching online. It was kind of an unusual thing. 
So that was the, the genesis of the idea that became Precision Nutrition. It's so crazy. And it's, it's, it's wild for me to listen to you because it's, it's such a pioneer moment. Um, I mean, my life, my business, my team, my family, it's all supported by this idea of coaching online. And we work with people all around the world. And it's just, it's so fascinating to see and hear about the early stages. And I even remember myself getting into it and some people not fully comprehending it. And this is just, however, several years ago. So let alone almost a decade, two decades, that would have been almost when he started thinking about these things, you know, so it's just wild to hear. And it's such a cool story. Um, But I want to dive more into what you do, the content you've created, the things you've done inside of PN. And the first thing I wanted to touch on was um, overeating. But first, the one of the books that you have written, um, my apologies for not remembering the, the title of it, because I haven't read it yet. But I want to dive into what that's about and get you to explain that topic of overeating and why we overeat as human beings and how we can kind of navigate around this. So if you want to kind of first touch on your book, and then we can kind of pick that apart. Yeah. Um, well, it's funny because I've, I've obviously been thinking about this for, for many years. And uh, again, we try to solve our own problems, right? And so, um, you know, 10 years ago when I was uh, training and competing and grappling, um, I started to notice that I was having eating issues. And I, I started to notice this was actually pretty common amongst anyone in a weight cut sport. So it struck me as really interesting because, of course, you expect that, you know, the, the classic picture of someone who grapples with eating issues is like a young woman, maybe a teenager or whatever. But I was starting to notice that, like, guys, like, you know, in their early 20s who had never had eating issues before, all of a sudden had eating issues and body issues. And I was like, that's really interesting. And I, I noticed that the common denominator there was that they were all weight cutting for fighting or MMA or wrestling or whatever. So that got me really interested in the topic because I was going through this as well. And I started researching and, and learning and um you know, I, I started with uh, this, this first little kind of free ebook I put out there. It's called Fuck Calories because it was like this moment of just like there's so much nutritional information out there. All of a sudden I was just like, oh, my God, this is all bullshit and useless. Is there some, some way I can translate this for people that would make it understandable? That would be a very simplified guide to like just calm down <laughs> and, and do it this way. Um, and then I actually wrote a little memoir called Consumed, which is about my own experiences with eating issues and kind of tied into like my own history and goofy family stories and that sort of thing. But then this final piece uh, is called Why Me Want Eat. And it, it takes the um, clinical literature on disordered eating, on coaching, on behavioral change, and which is very, very hard to read. It's very dry. It's very clinical. It only deals with the clinical population. I took all this literature, all this research, and, and put it into a format that was much more like a plain language workbook. So if you're someone who's struggling with eating issues, food, body stuff, exercise, whatever, you can take this workbook, which is laden with swear words, because that's just how I roll. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. I see all the self-help books now with like swear words in the title, and I'm like, please, like I was doing that 10 years ago. <laughs> I was cursing 10 years ago. Um, but like it's it's in a format that you can take and you can actually like it's a physical book it's not electronic because you there's something about having a physical tangible book that is really powerful for people you can take this physical book and you can write in it there's exercises there's things to get you thinking you can rip the pages out you can draw you can stick googly eyes in it whatever 
but it's a way to get you really engaged in a very concrete, plain language, real person way with the food and the eating issues that you've got with the hope that you come out the other side having gotten unstuck a little bit. So it's not going to fix you necessarily, but I hope that it will get you like significantly unstuck. And once you're unstuck, of course, you can, you know, gain some momentum and keep moving and evolving and growing out of that stuck place that you were in. Right. As you kind of dug into this literature, and I like that you said that I'm gonna link the book in the show notes for people because I think there's a there's a ton of and this is why I love research reviews now because it takes PubMed and it takes these research studies that are very actually very difficult to read because there's so many different citations and uh, different just context that most people don't understand and they kind of dumb it down for us. Um, but as you were going through all this in the creation, did you find any like main take home points or light bulb moments that were like, this is why we overeat, whether that's lifestyle related, environmental, physiological, um, psychological, or anything like that? Yeah, there's lots of pieces like that. And I think one of the big overarching themes is if we overeat, it is not because we suck as human beings. It is not a failure of character. It is not weakness. It is not lack of motivation. If we take kind of a biopsychosocial perspective, and what I mean by that is like we think about the, you know, the physiological, biological component and the psychological, cognitive component and the social, environmental component, we see that all of these pieces come together to create the situation that we have. And I would argue in the 21st century, almost all of us have some kind of food issue right now. If you live in an industrialized country, you probably have some kind of issue with food. And obviously it's on a continuum. Um, and this is the other advantage of the book. It's, it's not dealing with a clinical population, right? A very small subset of people who are like super hardcore into maladaptive behaviors. It's kind of more to everyone who's grappling with this. And so there are physiological components in the sense that um, you know, we have systems of appetite regulation and hunger and satiety that are getting thrown off by certain foods, by environmental cues. You know, if you're, for example, someone who's working shift work and you're outside the normal human circadian rhythm, you're going to notice disruptions to your appetite, to your hunger. Um, if you're eating highly processed foods, you know, you're going to notice that your appetite is, is different than if you're eating unprocessed foods. So there's the physiological piece. And of course, human beings are kind of out of sync with their environment right now, right? Like we're, we're running, we're trying to run software upgrades on old hardware, <laughs> hardware that's a couple million years old and evolved under conditions of food scarcity, right? Um, and then there's a the psychological piece, which is that, you know, many of us self-medicate with food or eating or control or particular kinds of behaviors. And so there's this piece of like alleviating distress with food and eating behaviors or um, changing the level of stimulation that we're experiencing, emotional stimulation, whether we're dialing it up or dialing it down with our food and eating behaviors. Um, there's all kinds of maladaptive scripts around the kinds of bodies we should have or you know, how we think we should be. And then there's this environmental piece of like, we're just surrounded by food and food cues almost all the time. Um, so like it is a very intersectional kind of experience. And there's another piece that we don't often talk about, which is that if you grapple with disordered eating in a really recurring way, there's a really strong chance that you've experienced some kind of traumatic event in your life, right? So if you see someone, like no one gets to 400 pounds by accident. It's not like, oops, I went on a cruise and you know, it's not like yeah. that, right? It's, it's, 
there is a systematic pattern of behaviors that are generally designed to alleviate the distress of earlier trauma. And, and so, I mean, when we have that perspective, then we can start being compassionate around our own struggles with eating and food or other people's struggles with eating to know that somehow this is the end link in a chain that stretches back quite a ways and involves quite a lot of pain and suffering. I think, I think there's quite a bit to unpack there. So I'm going to try my best to kind of <laughs> yeah. pick one thing at some, because I think at the end of the day, you know, there's no hacks and there's nothing that we can say like, well, what are the best strategies? Because everybody's individual in all of those different categories. Some people might be facing multiple and that's why they're overeating. Some people may be only facing one. Um, and some people we might have to dig and dig and dig and dig and try to figure that out. But I want to try to like help people listening kind of reverse this process. Um, the first question out of everything you just went off uh, that comes to my mind is you mentioned uh, consuming processed foods and if it fits your macros is like a really big thing right now. It has been for a while. And when we look at a lot of research, there's a lot of validity to the fact that, you know what, calories in versus calories out. It's, it's an equation that makes sense. And if you accumulate body fat, you're more likely to be susceptible to disease and um, different health risks and so on and so forth. But you also mentioned ultra processed food and maybe you didn't say it like this, but maybe going too much of it, if it fits your macros approach might lead to more of this overeating and cravings and stress and physiological issues. Can you unpack that a little bit for us so the listeners can kind of understand why you guys recommend whole food so much and why you see a, a bigger difference in consistency with individuals when they focus on that? Yeah, that's a great question. And like, I think the framing device for me is to say that we do a huge disservice to nature when we reduce everything to macronutrients mm. because the macronutrients are not a single thing. They're a category, a very broad category or family of molecules. So for example, in the carbohydrate family, you can have everything from the simplest sugar to tree bark to um, you know, particular uh, constructions of sugars in your immune system called glycans that are involved in immune system recognition, to pectin that's, that solidifies your jam. Like there's this massive, to muscle glycogen, right? There's this massive span of, of molecules that we group under the heading of carbohydrates or fats or proteins. And so um, to reduce foods to simply these incredibly broad categories, um, does a, a massive disservice to the unbelievable complexity of substances that are in food that go well beyond macronutrients as well. So uh, we're talking about phytonutrients, uh, zoonutrients, micronutrients. So like hundreds and hundreds and thousands of compounds, some of which we know, some of which we don't, that are present in food. And so like if I eat an orange, well, someone might say, oh, that's, I don't know, X amount of carbohydrate, right? But that orange has like several hundred known compounds in it as well <laughs> as the carbohydrates or, or even just something like a banana, which people would be like, okay, that's a, that's a pretty straightforward carb source. Well, there's multiple types of carbohydrate in that one banana, all of which are going to have different um, experiences in the process of digestion and assimilation in my body. So like to, to equate some low quality crap you know, extruded soy protein with uh, grass-fed or, or even wild-caught game meat. Like, it's just, it, it really dramatically oversimplifies 
the, the thousands of substances that are in our food and have effects in our body. So food is like a million times more than just macronutrient categories. Um, and also food is about experiences too, right? Like to reduce food to macros is like such a sad, <laughs> such a sad paradigm in a lot of ways because it's like, if I go out and I have an incredible meal and maybe it's culturally specific and I'm with my family and we're eating family recipes or something that's like, you know, reminds me of my heritage, those macronutrients are, are largely irrelevant in my experience of food and experience of eating. So I just think it's an incredibly reductionist paradigm. And of course, the other piece that a lot of folks have, have pointed out is, is to say, well, like eating a bag of sugar is not the same thing as eating an orange sweet potato. Like they're both carbohydrate sources, but the experience in my body is, is vastly, vastly different. So many people, and no, I mean, I think the more sophisticated macro approaches do take food quality into account. So, you know, we don't want to simplify what we're accusing mm -hmm. <laughs> of oversimplification, but I do think, you know, unless you really grasp the subtleties in it, it's so easy to oversimplify and to treat all substances as equivalent when they're really not in the systems of our bodies. And do you, in, for people listening that, because uh, I, I want to tie that, because I understand where you're coming from, and I 100% agree, it's very in line with my thought process, but I want people to be able to tie that to the fact that this will help them in the uh, strive for uh, not overeating, not binging, and, and finally seeing results. Because a lot of people, unfortunately, still reduce back to, well, calories in versus calories out. But I think like what you're saying, if, if I'm hearing you correctly, is that when we eat these type of foods that have more of an experience in our body, our body gets more out of it. And we are less likely to keep striving for more and more food to try to find those experiences, quote unquote. Um, does that make sense? It does. And I think there's, there's this, I mean, and I think there's some subtlety to the argument you want to make too, right? Because sometimes people will say, well, calories in, calories out doesn't matter. And then like on the other side, there's like, oh, you know, but everything's about energy balance. Mm -hmm. Like, okay, so first of all, <laughs> we can't break the laws of the universe. So energy balance has to be a thing on some level, right? Yeah. And a lot of people have said like, oh, I hear that precision nutrition doesn't believe in calories. And I'm like, that's like not believing in gravity, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> like, there, there is energy stored in food that our body, bodies, you know, utilize. Right. Um, so like, I think we want to be really careful not to create a, a straw person argument here. Um, but I think, you know, you're talking about the value of helping people not overeat. Um, I would actually argue that you know, for some people, tracking or, or a more structured approach to eating can be helpful at a certain point in their development. Um, I don't think it's necessarily a sustainable strategy for life. And what we also see in clients is that it provokes a lot of anxiety about following rules, mm -hmm. right? So it's like, oh, maybe I was traveling and I only got 20% this and 40% this when I really should have had the other way around. Like, then it provokes a huge amount of anxiety because you're not following the numbers. Um, so like, that's kind of one, one downside as well. But to go back to the whole foods thing, um, you know, eating whole foods or, or relatively less processed foods also helps us control energy balance and get an appropriate macronutrient ratio that we do genuinely need without a huge amount of cognitive investment. I think for me, that's the key. It's not that any of these systems are like patently wrong. It's more like they're not the most helpful tools or the process could be much simpler 
and less effortful. So like if I create a very complex, beautiful macronutrient spreadsheet, maybe that is the exactly perfect macronutrient ratio for me. Like maybe that is, that is true, right? And it's gonna help me reach all my goals. At the same time, what if there were a simpler way? Could I distill this method down to its essence and say, okay, choose relatively less processed foods, choose them in, in simpler portions, you know, we'll train you to do intuitive eating and to, you know, learn your hunger cues. And that's something you would always have with you uh, in a much simpler, um, cleaner, I, I hate to use the word clean because that associates, I'm thinking more of like a Zen, like a, yeah. like a minimalist kind of beautiful Zen <laughs> way. Um, to me, like coaching is about, effective coaching is about finding the minimum effective dose. Mm -hmm. So maybe I don't need to make you squat for 10 sets if I can get the same training effect with better recovery with two sets. Yeah. Right. So that's kind of the logic behind that. I'm not sure if I'm completely answering your question. So feel free to, you know, poke me where you think I might've missed something. No, I think, I think you are. And I don't think I'm looking for a black and white answer. I, I'm yeah. more of just a, provoking a discussion. And I think that's, I think that handles it perfectly, to be honest with you. I think people need to understand that there's kind of a gray area. There's a balance that we need to find. I often tell people that macros aren't a diet. They're an educational tool. So what I will show people is like, okay, well, if you are in a position where you are not, not where you want to be physically, we may introduce a written food journal. And then eventually we may track calories. And then eventually we may track calories and protein. And then eventually we may track all macros. But then eventually we're going to reduce that down to just calories and protein and then just calories and then back to a written food journal. And then eventually it's intuitive eating because you've gone through this cycle of understanding what your body needs. And we did it in a flexible approach so that nothing kind of took control, right? You should be able to not check your MyFitnessPal app for a day because it's a social event and not worry about it. Just get back on track tomorrow, right? Um, and I think that's the approach I try to explain. And I like the way you went about it because I think it does tie that in. That's a beautiful and elegant philosophy. And I like the way that you framed it. And the image I have in my head is almost like a diamond, right? So it's like on one end, there is a level of simplicity, right? Mm -hmm. And then you kind of expand the lens so that you are getting more analytical you are becoming more aware of things in a way that you wouldn't necessarily normally be. And you are reading labels and you are asking questions about protein grams. So you are really doing a deep dive into this. But the piece I think is so great and what you're saying is you don't stay there, mm -hmm. right? Eventually the goal is to take away and take away and take away things to think about until you arrive at the second point of complete and utter simplicity with no more than you require for whatever you know you're trying to do, um, so I think that's you, you've made such a really nice point about there is kind of a uh, almost like a lifespan to mm -hmm. this, right? And I think people often confuse tools that I might use right now with a tool that I should use forever, right? Food yeah. journaling is a great example of that. Do I want a food journal until I die at 97? <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> but would it be useful for me to food journal right now for the next few weeks or whatever? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and there's another piece here, I think, that, you know, people often assume that in order to get advanced results, you need advanced methods. And I would disagree with that premise because, you know, we work with some fairly elite athletes. Like I, you know, I, I work with someone who, you know, went to the Olympics. And what are we doing? Slow eating, hand size portions, meal prep, <laughs> mm -hmm. like really, really basic things because you know, el elites are elite because they're expert at the fundamentals, mm -hmm. not because they have an, an incredible amount of complexity in their programs. And so I think, you know, one of the tricky things is that a lot of people 
uh, look for complexity because it feels like a good solution. It feels like, yeah, this is, this is truthy. You know? yeah. <laughs> like, this has numbers. This feels like sciencey and good. But the fact is it, most people, even elite athletes, do not need that level of precision. What they need more is consistency with the fundamental behaviors mm -hmm. that will enable you to be successful. So I'm not saying that precision is, is never useful. Again, we, we want to use the right tool for the right job. But precision for most people, and it's funny because we have precision nutrition in our name, but, <laughs> but like, a, you know, a surgical level of precision is really unnecessary for most people and, and adds to the cognitive load of an already overloaded brain and psyche and set of emotions. So if you give, uh, for example, a macro program to someone that already struggles with food and eating, there's a really good chance you're just adding straw on the yeah. camel's back that's going to crack them. Yeah, I 100% agree. And I think the beauty in that is um, two things that come to mind. Number one, a lot of, yeah, I always like to preface with, you know, people like you and I have done enough research and studying and dieting and eating over time that we probably can get away with intuitive eating a little bit easier because of that education. But I try to enforce that education with clients because I think that's where we can see long-term success and kind of go through that diamond or that path I explained, like to go through that properly kind of builds in everything we've been talking about and kind of lays down that foundation so that they can be successful without being tied down to one philosophy. Um, because as it is, it's, it's the education along the way that really provides that. And, and if we really boil down to a uh, precision model with like getting really analytical numbers, nothing is hundred percent accurate anyway. It's all estimations. So if you are becoming OCD about the numbers inside your MyFitnessPal, you're becoming OCD about a number that's not actually accurate in the first place. It's, it's really just a close estimation, probably the closest estimation we can get. So there are times that we do want to track those macros and things like that. But um, I often have a conversation with people and like listeners of the podcast where they get so obsessed with this exact amount of carbs. And or this exact amount of protein. And I always use the funny analogy of like, well, there's really no telling that that four ounce chicken breast is actually exactly 26 pounds because it was a different chicken and it might've had a different amount of muscle or fat or life. And you never know what its lifestyle was like, which sounds funny to people, but in reality, it's all just estimations. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's such an important point. And, and you know, once it's inside our body, who knows, right? Like what's your gastric motility like? Mm -hmm. How effectively are you, are you absorbing it? Like, um, you know, we forget that what we consume is not always what we absorb or, or what we use, right? Um, so there's that other piece, like like inside the human body is this like weird like black box like closed system where we cannot know all the inputs and outputs. And I think a lot of people will say, well, calories don't matter because I got this outcome while while not worrying about calories. And it's like, well, energy balance is still a thing. Like thermodynamics is still a thing, but because we don't know all the inputs and outputs. We don't know exactly what's happening in that closed system. All we can do is, in, is uh, estimate the input, to some degree measure the output, whether that's change in weight or body fat or performance or whatever. But like what's happening in between is kind of a mystery. Mm -hmm. Even if you can lab test a lot of stuff, there's still a lot of unknowns. Like you don't know what exactly your enterocytes are doing, <laughs> right? Yeah. Or your intestinal bacteria or, or your gastric motility or you know, any of that stuff. Um, you said something else I think is, is worth mentioning, which is that there are times when it is useful to track macros to some degree. And I'm thinking of the example of making sure that people are getting enough 
of things. Uh, we see this a lot, especially in some client groups, like younger women, for example, mm-hmm. tend not to get enough protein. Or people who are plant-based eaters struggle with, with protein intake, right? So we might use macros strategically to say, are you getting adequate protein for your needs? Or are you getting adequate fiber for your needs? Um, do we need to adjust your carbohydrate intake up or down? Um, so there's like definitely times when we can use the tools in our toolbox for a specific purpose. So I don't want people to come away from this call thinking, oh, you know, not only does precision nutrition not believe in calories, they don't believe in macronutrients, right? Like I don't want that message to, to come across, but I think we do need to speak out against the one size fits all. Yes. Everyone should be doing this method for the rest of their life thinking and really think about it more like specific needs, specific clients, specific moments, specific tools for a specific purpose. Yeah. And I agree with that. And that's, that's what I was looking to get out of the conversation is it's all just tools, right? And as you yeah. grow and, and I like that you added the addition at the end, because one thing I took away from, I mean, years ago when I first was introduced to precision nutrition was just the psychology behind uh, adding to a client's plan versus mm-hmm. taking away. And I think that's a very powerful thing in and of itself, because teaching people that you can eat more food or you can be satiated or you should eat more of this um, versus constantly taking away. Or even if you're adding something in subconsciously knowing, like you talked about earlier, intuitively eating more whole foods likely will lead to a better energy balance just because you're choosing the right foods. So instead of me trying to create a deficit, I'm trying to add high quality foods and then naturally a deficit happens. I think that's kind of the art of coaching. Um, But to kind of tie off this overeating subject, um, the last thing I just kind of want to touch on is if you have any specific lifestyle, environmental stress management, any type of habits that you guys typically try to gear uh, clients towards to avoid overeating going back to this idea of like people are struggling with binging or overeating or this uh, I think damn near everybody listening I'm sure you and I can relate to this but being amazing Monday through Friday then the weekend hits and it's the weekend warrior (laughs) you have way too many calories whether you're tracking or not it's just kind of like I I remember going through the cyclical cheat day weekend um, for years and how do we reverse that? What kind of lifestyle habits do we need to implement? What things should we be uh, mentally thinking about on a day-to-day basis to avoid those cycles? Yeah, I mean, that's such a common question, right? Like all of us, all of us are there. And, um, and, and when we add things like alcohol into the mix, of course, mm-hmm. like then you increase the, what we call the disinhibition stimulus, also known as the fuck it moment where you're like, fuck it, I got to get that burger at two in yeah. the morning or whatever, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, so alcohol, alcohol is typically in the mix on, in, on weekends, which, which changes the game in all kinds of ways. But, you know, I, I think about this as almost like reverse engineering. And so I ask myself, what, what is true when I overeat? Like what conditions are in place when I overeat? Well, um, a lot of the time, binge eating depends on speed, right? So that's one criteria. It depends on uh, dissociation to some degree. I I become dissociated from my physical sensations and my own hunger and satiety cues. It depends on, um, you know, maybe a particular environment, maybe, or a particular uh, social setting. Maybe you have your binge buddies or your overeating buddies, or maybe it depends on a particular feeling that I have or a particular thought script around what this is going to give me. Like, um, I deserve this. Like maybe Friday I come home and I'm like, man, it's been a hard week. I deserve this. There's a particular thought script involved. So, so overeating is not like this random event, right? It's a chain of events or a, a chain of things that leads to this event. 
whether that's thoughts, feelings, sensations, situations, social relationships, all those aspects of, of deep health um, that I was talking about before. And so if you look at the situation, so you begin by noticing where, when, how am I most likely to overeat? What situations am I in? Let's do a crime scene analysis, right? Like, like CSI. What is happening? What was I thinking? What was I feeling? What was around me? What did I choose to overeat? How did I do it? Start by noticing what your patterns are. And then see if you can reverse engineer the opposite or something that disrupts that pattern. So here's, here's an example. Um, I used to overeat every Saturday night. That was like my weekend thing. And what I discovered is that my partner and I would go out to dinner or we'd do something fun. And then I would come home and I would go through the kitchen. So I might've already had this sort of disinhibition of like, well, I've already eaten junk food. I've already had a drink or I've already been out, right? Somehow I feel like the rules don't apply. And I'm now in the kitchen. So this is like the perfect recipe for overeating, right? And it's late, right? So typically we know that willpower tends to decrease like over time mm -hmm. um, in, in a day. So now it's late. I'm in the kitchen. I've had a drink. Like it's, it's go time. <laughs> so I made a simple change. I avoided the kitchen when I came in after being out on a Saturday night. So I changed the environmental cue, which broke the pattern. So it's not always as simple as that, but look for all the elements and ask yourself, how can I disrupt this pattern? A really common one is just slowing down because overeating depends on speed. It depends on you not noticing what you're doing. It depends on checking out. So what's the opposite? Slowing down, checking in. That can look all kinds of different ways. I'll say something like, you know, hey, listen, before you eat something, you can go ahead and bid. That's fine. But before you do it, stop. Take a breath, take a bite, take another breath, like breathe between your bites, slow it down. You can eat that whole pizza or whatever. It's always, it's going to be there for you. It's not going to go anywhere. Slow it down and breathe and check in and ask yourself, what am I feeling? What am I thinking? Those two things alone can be very effective strategies because they cut, they cut out the legs, if you will, from under overeating, right? Uh, overeating is like, a, is like a table that sits on legs. If you, if you take away those legs systematically, table tips Does that make sense yeah absolutely yeah. i think i think they are it's really it's tools to build self-awareness and i think the problem with people is i shouldn't say the problem with people um, that doesn't come off right but i think the issue a lot of people struggle with is that they don't spend the time trying to build that self-awareness um, and so for some people That's it right. might even sound cheesy like oh, okay i'm gonna set my fork down between each bite okay like and it's almost like they don't want to admit that they have to do that um, or like try setting a 20 minute timer for your meal. Like it, I have done that personally and I didn't realize how fast I ate because it was like, Oh, it's just 20 minutes. It's fine. I usually eat for 20 minutes and I could eat that meal in three minutes and I had no idea I was eating so fast. So they, yes. they really, really do apply and it, it creates so much more self-awareness and, and just to slow down. So I really like that approach. And I think, um, something I've used in the past is actually, uh, just journaling. Like you said, um, I had a, a guy that comes to my mind that would go to his like it wasn't a binge but his his kind of uh issue was going through the drive-through um oh. and and he would always like be good 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 all of a sudden man i ate fast food again last night i'm like, okay next time i just want you to pull over in the parking lot before you go through the drive-through like you said eggs word for word i was like go through the drive-through get whatever you want i don't care but stop in the parking lot first take out the journal we send clients little journals and i said take out the journal and just take some notes what happened at work 
when are you getting off? What was the situation here? Where are you going home to? Like, what's the, everything around? And that was the big game changer. And I don't think it was necessarily that, like, I, I can't remember if his boss was just being a dick or whatever it may have been. That didn't change. But the act of him stopping, slowing down, and thinking about why he was doing it was enough for him to be like, you know what? No, I'm not going to go do that. And I think that's a big point of it, too, is like when you stop and create that self-awareness, you almost talk yourself out of taking action on that negative habit. Yeah, man, that's genius right here. I think your, your listeners should pause and, and, and take a note of this tactic because that's an absolutely <laughs> brilliant technique to just stop and externalize mm -hmm. by journaling or, or you know whatever, what is going on. Um, and the other piece, too, is sort of bringing an attitude of compassion to this, like Rather than being like, oh, God, I'm such a lazy asshole and I don't have any willpower and I suck and blah, 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 that's never going to work. Like, we cannot bully ourselves into change. We can't berate ourselves into change. We can't punish ourselves into change. It just doesn't work. So, like, everyone listening, I give you my permission to abandon that as a strategy. <laughs> it is a useless, fruitless strategy. And it also makes the problem worse because now you're stressed because you're pissed off at yourself. Right. So now you have your original stress, whatever prompted the overeating, and you have double stress because you're so full of like self-loathing about it. Mm -hmm. So so the, there's that piece of noticing, externalizing, you know, um, somehow bringing it to your conscious awareness, but also bringing compassion to that. Like, oh, yeah, you know what? I am stressed. Like I'm sitting here in this parking lot and my boss yelled at me today and I had to have all these TPS reports done and I'm feeling really stressed. Oh, God, that is a lot. Right. So to bring that like basic level of empathy and compassion to yourself, to your own struggles, is it another huge game changer because that takes so much of the pressure off and it enables your mind to just relax and stop defending against the onslaught of distressing stimuli that are coming at it from outside and inside. 100% mm -hmm. agree. I think uh, something that this is kind of random, but it comes to mind. Um, as you probably know, self-discipline like literally drains your energy. It's not infinite. So, I mean, an obvious thing, if, if you have something that triggers you in the house, probably just remove it because the more you have to say no to it, the less discipline you'll have to say no to the next thing. Um, but I think all thought processes take energy. So like when you're saying people are self-loathing and they're getting down on themselves, that takes energy too, stress in general. Um, and the thing that popped in my head was Steve Jobs because he has this quote where he his closet was all the same thing. It was just all white tees and jeans. And he was like, I don't want to think about what I wear because it's wasting my energy on pointless tasks or something that almost sounds like just ridiculous. And then you think about it and it's like, well, how many pointless tasks am I waiting, wasting my energy on? And it's kind of that same philosophy of like, let's preserve the energy and the thought processes you have to act on positivity and good things. So um, I love where this discussion is going, but I do want to touch, I don't know if we have enough time to do it justice, but I want to touch on genetics because you guys had a beautiful write-up on this. Um, I'm curious, what got you into studying and writing that in the first place of like why you want to touch on genetics? And if we can just kind of, I know we can't recap the whole thing, so I'm going to link it in here because it's free and people can go read it. But um, I want to touch on the importance of understanding genetics and how that plays a role in weight loss, our metabolism, um, and the results we're going to see. Yeah, and it's such an interesting topic, and it's, it's, it's still relatively so much in its infancy mm -hmm. that I think we're at the phase now where we can see such incredible potential in it, and we can see very clearly how particular genetic makeups can create certain outcomes, um, and we're, we're learning about this more and more every single day. So we see the potential and the possibility, right? But I think uh, we've gotten a little bit ahead of ourselves in understanding 
what this can actually offer us in terms of like concrete ways to live our life. And so to, to back up, the impetus for writing this um, in collaboration with my co-authors, who are vastly more qualified to comment on genetics than I am, just, <laughs> just FYI. There's like a, you know, a PhD and a bioinformatics person and whatever. So, um, but like, I mean, most of us, I think now are aware of testing services like 23andMe or whatever, mm-hmm. Athletogen, um, that, that are offering a customized program of some kind. And like different companies make different levels of claims about you know what they can offer you. For some companies, it's like, hey, let's see what's in your genetic code. Cool. It's kind of like a fun thing. Or what's your ancestry? Um, and others are more prescriptive. Like, hey, we can tell you exactly what to eat and exactly exactly how to exercise. And you know, so there's a real range of um, claims that companies will make. And we were very interested in that. And we were like, well, like, how does this hold up? Is this actually a legitimate scientifically credible uh, kind of argument. And so what we did in this book was kind of invite people into that conversation about genetics and about genetic testing, especially as it pertains to how it might affect your body, your health, um, your your metabolism in particular, like metabolic health, um, and your eating and your exercise. And essentially the take home, and this is very boring, (laughs) (laughs) But like, no matter what the complexity is, the basic habits still apply to a lot of us. Um, And, and, and it is complex. I mean, I just saw a study a few days ago that said that waist, waist circumference or or, um, your propensity to gain weight around your midsection is governed by at least 206 known, like low side, like different variations. So that's just like whether you're going to gain weight around your midsection, wow. right? Is is and I say governed, and maybe I shouldn't even use that term because one of the tricky things about genetics is that we tend to assume, I think, that it is more prescriptive or more um, inevitable than it really is. Really, what we're dealing with is a set of intersecting probabilities or possibilities. So it's like the the world's most complicated lottery system. So in very few cases are you going to have a single variation that definitively causes something. Mm. Generally, if you have survived conception and being born and infancy, like if you have survived to adulthood, there's a really strong chance that you do not have a genetic variation that is inevitably going to lead to something. You don't have a, a bad genes, if you will. Mm-hmm. But what you do have is a collection of genes and genetic variations that in all kinds of ways intersect to create this unique blueprint of you and intersect under various environmental conditions. So height, for example, is governed by multiple genes. Intelligence is governed by multiple genes uh, that we know of <laughs> uh, in usually European populations, which I should also stipulate. But like, let's say you have, I don't know, let, let's, let's, let's say just for the sake of argument that there are 200 intersecting intelligence genes and this is audio, so you can't see I'm putting this in finger quotes, but let's just say that's a thing. <laughs> then you have two, let's say you have two genetically identical people, you know, twins separate at birth. One twin is raised by, you know, a, the, by Harvard University. <laughs> They're actually fostered in Harvard University. And then another twin is raised like on a desert island with only rocks for friends, right? Who is going to have the, the better outcome in terms of like uh, the growth of their intelligence, the growth of their potential? 
obviously the person whose environment environment supports that much more. So I guess this is a very long answer to the short version, which is genetics is really cool. It's extremely complicated. Uh, we're very limited in what we can know because uh, much of the work is still to date done on European populations or um, often if there are legitimate studies about things, they only concern a single nucleotide polymorphism or a SNP, which is like a tiny, tiny, tiny variation in like the billions of combinations that can occur. And it may only be a probability rather than a, a given. So if someone is telling you, I can tell you exactly how to eat and exactly how to, exactly how to exercise based on your genetics, that is not a scientifically supportable statement. Mm. All we can show are potential tendencies, which can still be overridden by our behaviors. So even if you had, quote unquote, the obesity genes, which again are like multiple, multiple, multiple genes and variations, even if you had the perfect storm, if you eat well and you exercise, it's still not going to make you obese. So yeah, it's kind of a boring message in a way. But I mean, there's so much coolness to it. But I like that because I think it's another one of those things that uh, rises up in the industry that can scare people and it create fear mongering. And people are like, well, shit, now I have to spend all this money on genetic testing and then I have to get an expert to read them. And, you know, I've listened to a few podcasts of people who um, will read your DNA and ancestry and genetic tests and then give you recommendations if there are uh, issues. And it's an interesting conversation. but when you hear the conversation, a lot of it doesn't apply, right? It, it's like, well, if this happened, you would want to do X, Y, Z with these supplementations, these types of foods, but that's not your case. If this happened, but that's not your case. And, and I don't think it's like that gene where people can get away with like four hours of sleep a night. It's like 0.000001% of people. Like it's, I, don't right. know the, I don't know the exact percentage, but it's very low. Um, so my follow-up question with that would be um, the only – type of validity that I found interesting was things like uh, there are genes for diabetes, there are genes for um, Alzheimer's, for example. And in those scenarios, you might want to increase omega-3 fatty acid consumption, simple things like that. Do you find that there is benefit inside of looking into those type of things to just improve general health, not necessarily body composition and longevity? Yeah, well, you know, it's so interesting because the funny thing is research around genetic counseling also shows if I say to you, listen, I looked at your genetic blueprint, it is a, a flaming clown car disaster in there, you're going to die of all the things, <laughs> I strongly recommend you change your behaviors. People still are not likely to change their behavior. Because <laughs> I think we have this assumption that if we just give people the information about their health risks, yeah. they will be motivated to change their behaviors. And we know absolutely <laughs> that this is not the case. Um, and so... Um, like that's another piece of the puzzle, right? We tend to assume, oh, if I could just tell someone, I don't know, eat more vitamin D or something like that, supplement with more vitamin D, that they're going to go do it. But that's, you know, what we, what you and I both know is that human behavior mm -hmm. is is really not at all dependent on information. So you might have everyone from who we call the worried well, like people who who love to improve their health and love to think about this stuff. And they'll make changes based on no problems. You know, like I looked at my 23 and me and it was like, yep, you're good to go. You look fine in pretty much every dimension. Dimension. Well, I'm still motivated to improve my health because, yeah. you know, that's just an intrinsically good thing. So that's one end of the spectrum. The other end of the spectrum is I have clients who have been told by their doctors, 
dude, you have to change something or you're going to die. Like it's not a probability, it is inevitability. Yeah. Or you've just had four heart attacks or like there's some very clear concrete situation where you must change who have not. So, <laughs> you know, it's, I, I think right now genetic testing is, again, very cool probability. It remains the province of the worried well. You know, the people who are already fairly healthy uh, or, I mean, there's a, sort of a side group of people who are looking to have a healthy baby, which I think is, you know, a completely legit thing. But if we're just talking about people who are looking for a prescription for exercise and, and diet, by and large, either they're not going to get anything super useful or they will need additional behavioral support to make any changes whatsoever. Mm -hmm. And that's and that's the issue with, uh, not to talk down on the medical community inside of nutrition, but uh, a consultation uh, doesn't go far without consistent accountability. And that's why I think coaching is so valuable because it's it's that consistent accountability and support and connection and communication that really helps. Um, and, you know, I even have, I have a client right now that I'm working with who had heart surgery and that wasn't a sudden thing. It yeah, <laughs> it, it came from years of poor eating and, and making the wrong choices. And the doctor, like you said, letting them know, hey, this is not this is in your future if you don't stop. And unfortunately, it takes that serious of a thing. And that's something you don't always come back from. So for the people that they they are in that situation, if you are listening, it's like you need to make that change now before you get to that point, because not everybody makes it out of heart surgery. Um, but I, I want to respect your time. We are wrapping up. This is an amazing conversation. I could literally keep talking to you for hours. But um, the last thing I wanted to ask you was something that I actually read uh, an article of yours from a long time ago. So we're going to see if you have the same answers that you did back then. And this is a really cool <laughs> question. Um, and something that I actually find is very uh, applicable for people listening. But it's the top three things you see people do to mess up their own nutrition. And I have your answers written here from back in the day. So I want to see um, if if they check out and I actually believe yeah no no there was there was like six questions with Krista and then the first question was top three things you see people mess up their nutrition so let's see if that checks out what are your yeah right now I, I right now oh my god top three things people do mess up their nutrition or like it doesn't necessarily have to be what you see right now but maybe what you've seen over the years like what have you gathered yeah yeah um, you know, one of the pieces comes back to what we were just discussing a little while ago, which was eating in a way that is checked out from reality. And, and that can look all kinds of ways. So for example, that can be, um, I eat something that makes me feel lousy and I disobey the evidence of that experience. I continue mm -hmm. to eat that thing even though it makes me feel crappy, um, either because I simply don't notice or, um, you know, I, I persist in not um, aligning cause and effect. I feel like people are very immersed in magical thinking and they don't, I mean, here's an example of how that looks in practice. Someone will say, uh, yeah, you know what, I'm, I'm an athlete in such and such a sport, I'm competitive, and I heard this, this uh, keto diet was really awesome, and so I went keto, but I don't, now I don't have any energy for my sport, which is very, like, carb-dependent. Um, and I, and I feel really crappy, but I'm going to keep doing keto because I heard that it's really good. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and this happens a lot. So people will often, uh, privilege a cognitive, uh, arbitrary plan versus the evidence of their own lived mm -hmm. experience. So I think that's piece number one, which is sort of like not adequately engaging with reality. Mm in terms of the choices that you make or, or ignoring cause and cause and effect, or like every time I eat this, I feel bad, but I'm going to just keep going. 
So I think that's, I mean, that's a very meta one that can look all kinds of ways, but I, I think that's a really, a really big one. And, and one of the roles of a coach is simply to bring people's attention to inputs and outputs. When I do X, Y happens. Mm-hmm. Is that the result I want? Yes or no. Right. And it sounds so simple, but actually very few of us think in this systematic way, which is why coaching is really, really helpful because mm-hmm. a coach can do that. Um, I think the second one would be to make things unnecessarily complex. So to feel, and, and, and I don't blame people for this. Like, I don't, I don't think people are stupid for doing this because, you know, in, in 2019, we are surrounded by expert advice, quote unquote, expert advice, <laughs> information overload, <laughs> information overload. And, and I think, you know, like I just, I, I get asked all the time, what is the next level nutrition secret or, or how can someone do this at an incredibly high level of complexity? So that's like the zeitgeist of our culture where we feel like things have to be super complicated to be effective. Mm-hmm. And of course the opposite is true, right? So you know, people are like, oh, I'm going to be, bi- I'm going to be a biohacker. I'm optimizing my sleep. And it's like, how about you just go to bed on time and stop reading social media? <laughs> 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 um, how about you just get off your phone? Like, so there's yeah. like, you know, and, and so there's, there's an idea that uh, everything has to be incredibly complex. Um, and so I think that people are drawn into that because it, it has a certain logic to it. It's like, well, yeah, this feels sciencey because it's complicated. And I really want to do a good job. So I'm gonna see if I can follow this. So I think I think that's um, that's one. And you get people all get getting people get all tangled up in the complexity. Mm-hmm. So maybe you're just an average person, and you're like, yeah, here's my 37 rules for eating, and it's like I've heard about nutrient timing, and I've heard about it's. I mean, like what a mess, what yeah. a mess that is. Uh, versus if I just say, listen, I'm gonna teach you to eat when you're hungry and stop when you're full. Done. <laughs> Problem yeah. solved. Um, what would be the third thing? Uh, you know what? I think the third thing might be to uh, do some of what we talked about earlier in this conversation, which is um, to focus on the wrong aspects of what they think is valuable. Mm. So what I mean by that is maybe I believe that a particular macronutrient split or a particular kind of nutrient timing or whatever is going to be the thing that makes the magic versus the boring old fundamentals versus covering my bases, getting those big rocks in the jar. Um, I think that people often engage not just in magical thinking, like this thing is going to save me, but they 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 magnify the minutia. Mm-hmm. I think that is a very common error. Or I mean, we mentioned supplements just now. To think that a certain supplement is going to be what makes the difference over those bigger basics. Like I always feel like no supplement is better than one hour of sleep extra yeah. every night consistently, yeah. right? So I think majoring in the minor is is maybe. The, I mean, all these three three are clearly related by by. Right. Um, Thing, you know well and i think it really does every i don't know if you're familiar with who dan john is but dan john is a legend dan john was like one of the first guys i started reading when i was was learning to strength train so yeah one of, one of my uh 
my college professor was like best friends with them, not best friends, but they were really close. So he did guest speaking at my school. And like, we, I read his book was one of the first books I read. But every time I overcomplicate anything, I go read a Dan John quote. And I just remember, yeah. like, yeah, like, let's just simplify. Um, and I think like, you're so right, because even complex strategies like a period of time where you do need to track macros and periodize and think like that, even that can be more simple than a lot of people make it out to be. Um, so I like that. Your, your first, uh, the answers I have written here actually do correlate to those. I think you um, elaborated and made them a little bit more sophisticated this time. Um, assuming good nutrition is miserable, which I 100% agree with. Oh, yeah. um, not learning how to cook. I think that's one that nobody would think to put because it seems so simple, but it's so unbelievably true and it can just make everything so much easier. Um, and then lying to ourselves. And inside that one, you kind of went on to um, the idea of, of your first point. Um, but you also mentioned the article, like, n- not accurately writing down what you actually ate and how much you actually ate and things like that. Um, but then also what you mentioned about um, how you feel after you eat something and like lying to yourself, like, no, it's not bugging me. Like, I feel fine. Um, when in reality, your input is making your output pretty horrible and you're ignoring that biofeedback. So um, I love your answers. Um, this has really been a cool conversation. Like I said, for me, I, I'm grateful to have you guys on the podcast. I'm excited for my episode with Brian too, just because um, I've been a big fan. You guys have made a big influence on my career and what I do today. And, and you guys have this spider web effect because my team's all certified. I'm certified. We help hundreds of people every month with their nutrition. And now they're spreading that. My content reaches people and, you guys have had an effect on that. So it's, it's really just, I want you guys to know how big of an effect precision nutrition really has. Um, and I know sometimes you and I can probably relate to this about being behind the screen and, you know, writing our blogs and doing our content and, and not realizing the lives it touches. So it's just really cool. So thank you for all you do. And thank you for your time on the podcast. This has been a really, really good conversation. Um, but before you go, please let everybody know um, where they can find you on Instagram or where to check out for a website. If you guys are launching anything, anything you want to kind of promote or or let the listeners know about. Yeah, I will in just one second, but I have to call out how wonderful it was that you talked about that sort of spiderweb effect, because I think that, you know, um, in an age of celebrity coaches, and again, I'm using finger quotes, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, celebrity influencers, I, I think, it's so valuable to call out the people who really want to be of service in the world and who really want to help people. And I think that's a wonderful thing. And it's so great to think that, you know, me, me hamstering away (laughs) on a textbook uh, alone in my apartment can actually reach hundreds of people or even thousands and and the effect can be distributed and that we are literally saving people's lives. Sometimes feels like incredible to me. And to know that we can extend that reach is just, tremendous so you know thanks to you and the work that you do and and in bettering people's lives and even even saving them so so i just kind of wanted to i I didn't didn't want to let that point go uh uh, unremarked upon Uh, in terms of where people can find me i mean i'm on the facebook (laughs) they can find krista scott dixon um i'm on instagram at stumptuous s-t-u-m-p-t-u-o-u-s it's a conjunction of stumpy and sumptuous um, you can find me stumptuous.com, although I, I'm not, I mean, I haven't updated that website in ages. Um, and then the book that we're talking about is called Why, Why Me Want Eat, Fixing Your Food Fucked Appetite. And uh, that's on Amazon. So uh, you can go and find that on, on Amazon. And it is a print book. Again, it's meant to be written on and scribbled on and engaged with physically, just like our print textbook, which is sitting behind me. And of course, you can't see it. But like, we debated a lot about whether we would make all of our certification electronic but there's something amazing 
and I'm holding this thing now, it weighs like five pounds, like it's a hefty creature. <laughs> There's something amazing about a print thing. I agree. Um, I still so, have yeah. on the bookshelf behind me, it's up here. I still have the original PN textbook. So I, I haven't let go of it. I still have my workbook that I wrote in from years ago. So I agree. There's something about, I have my handwritten journal right here. I don't use anything like that. I just, I, I agree hundred percent. I think the handwritten, there's a lot of value in that. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, this is another argument for making things tangible and you had that great tip about journaling. So not to hate on electronic things because uh, they have their place. Absolutely. But um, yeah. So uh, yeah. Why do you want eat? Find it on Amazon. Awesome. <laughs> I'll link all that stuff in the show notes so you guys can grab it and check things out. And uh, once again, Krista, thank you. My pleasure. Thanks so much. Before I let you go, I just want to say thanks. I seriously appreciate you spending this last hour or so with me, educating yourself to get better results. It still humbles me to this day that people around the world literally have me in their headphones or their speakers just to learn. It's so empowering, and because of that, I have three quick things for you. The first one is a personal favor. Please leave me a five-star rating and review on iTunes. When you do this, not only does it help me learn and get better at making podcasts for you to get better results, but it helps us grow inside of iTunes, which allows us to invest more, again, to get you better results. The second thing, head over to boomboomformance.com slash sign dash up or click the link in the show notes to get your free copy of the Nutrition Hierarchy. This is everything you need to know about nutrition to change your body composition or performance inside of a manual. I take the leading evidence inside of research and all the principles, methods, and tools based on some of the top professionals in the industry, and I put them all in a book so you can learn more about your nutrition and get better results. The third thing, this is a personal invitation to shoot me a DM on Instagram or email me at cody at boomboomperformance.com. I will help you troubleshoot anything you need. This is literally an invitation to jump in my inbox and ask me anything you want and let me help you. All right, guys, that's all I got for you this time. I appreciate you being here, and I'll see you next time.